0: UEG Talks, gastroenterology to go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the UEG Talks. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Pradeep Mundre, and I'm your host for today. Now, Today's topic is definitely one of my favorites. Uh, Today we are discussing about fascinating and curious facts in the history of gastroenterology. And it's amazing to know that there's so many of them to keep us going. I personally found them so interesting and definitely use some of these in my social interactions. And certainly such topics generally generate uh, a lot of interest, especially um, with my non-medical friends over a drink. Now, today's guest is Dr. Enrique Damadaria, consultant gastroenterologist at Dr. Balmis University Hospital in Alicante in Spain. Enrique is a researcher in pancreatic diseases and a promoter of waterfall trial. And many of you may already know Enrique, who has been involved in UEG in various roles and has been awarded as a UEG Rising Star award in 2017, and also a a social media ambassador award in the past. Uh, The most interesting thing about Enrique is he he has an online newsletter, the Madaria versus Placebo, where he regularly uploads some of the most interesting and curious things in clinical research. Enrique, thank you so much for being with us today and your valuable time. We are so
1: pleased to have you as our guest. Thank you, Pradeep, thank you and the OEG for the opportunity to participate in this podcast and congratulations on this initiative. Excellent.
0: So, uh, Enrique, first thing that interests me is why medical history? You know, what got you so much interested in this topic?
1: Well, Pradeep, uh, my grandfather, Angel, was a gastroenterologist in my town in Alicante, which is a small Spanish coastal city. When I was a child, he used to tell me stories about the great discoveries in medicine. In addition, he gave me the fantastic book, which I recommend to all of you, The Microbe Hunters by Paul DeCrove. It recounted the great milestones in, in the beginnings of mi- microbiology and the management of infectious diseases with Lee Wenhuk, Pasteur, Koch, They were stories of science, adventures, and great discoveries. Thus, the history of medicine has fascinated me for a long time, as I can remember, in fact. I I
0: do remember, uh, I do read books, but I've never ever read a medical history book. So I'll definitely go by your recommendation. And (laughs) and I would certainly advise the, the listeners to read these so, uh, Enrique, let's kick start with maybe your favourite, actually. Um, according to you, what would be one of your most fascinating things that you've ever come across in, in medical
1: history or gastroenterology history even? Well, probably it's difficult to say, but one of the stories that fascinates me the most is that of warfarin, the decoumarinic oral anticoagulant. I wrote a post about it in my newsletter that is entitled Of Cows, Rats, Vampires, and a Soldier. You know, there are plants like sweet clover that have a substance that smells like vanilla and is very, very bitter. It's coumarin. Fresh coumarin has no anticoagulant properties, but if mowed and fermented, certain fungi can transform coumarin into decoumarol, which has an anticoagulant effect. And in the 1920s, there was an epidemic of bleeding in cows in northern United States and Canada. A Canadian veterinarian, Frank Schofield, discovered that it was due to feeding these animals with fermented grass containing sweet clover. This veterinarian realized that there was something in the fermented sweet clover that had these anticoagulant properties, and it was like a venom, a toxic. Right, yeah. (laughs) It was recommended that cows not be fed with fermented grass, but many farmers continued to use it. One of them, fed up with seeing his cows bleed to death, decided to transport the carcass of a cow, a can of milk full of blood that would not coagulate, and 100 pounds of fermented sweet clover on a 200-mile journey to an agricultural experimental laboratory where biochemist Carl Link decided to investigate this mystery and isolate the toxicant. A team of researchers discovered decumarol after seven years working on this anticoagulation drug. They took advantage of that toxicity to use it, in fact, as a rat poison. But it was not potent enough, so they modified this molecule. They worked a lot, discovering a potent anticoagulant that was more lethal to rodents. Since these experiments were funded by the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, WARF, They named the new compound warfarin. At first, they were so afraid to use it on humans that it was just used as a rat poison. But in 1951, a military man, an army inductee, tried to commit suicide by taking rat poison-containing warfarin mixed with cornstarch for five days. But he was repentant. He went to hospital, and after being treated with vitamin K, he recovered without problems. This case, I found it is published in JAMA, in the scientific journal. And you know, the researchers uh, were conscious that this poison did not kill you humans, so it led them to test it as a drug, and it revolutionized the management of thrombosis-associated diseases when it was approved for using humans in 1954. And two years later, the U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower received warfarin for a myocardial infarction, which increased the prestige and the use of this drug. So, Pradeep, if you, you can see that there is a mixture of uh, random things, of yeah. discoveries and hard work for using anticoagulants in the human being. So, for me, this kind of serendipity, and and hard working on discovering something is inspirational and it's very nice to know about these kind of things
0: and, and such a long journey uh you know uh of this uh, of this drug from 1920s as i make it yeah. to to being used a long time and then we still amazingly use it probably one of the most common things that is being used that's very interesting enrique I'm moving on. I'm always fascinated about the origins of clinical trials in medicine. I remember from my medical school days that the, there is an interesting story about this, right? Uh, I vaguely remember this about some oranges and things. Can you tell us some interesting facts about the origins of or facts or, tra- or stories? Maybe some of them. Oh, this is a fact uh, about the origins of clinical trials.
1: Okay. Uh, in the 16th century, Long maritime expeditions began to take place in which the ship's crews could spend months without setting foot on dry land. Those sailors whose diet was based on salted meat and cereals had a low intake of vitamin C and suffered from scurvy, a disease that could kill them and killed a lot of people in in this era of great discoveries, of great trips, great processes. James Lynn was a surgeon from Edinburgh. In the 18th century, at the age of 23, he went to sea to learn about the art of naval surgery. And when Lin was 31 years old, during a mission on a ship, sailors began to suffer from scurvy, and Lynn decided to conduct an experiment that it is recognized as the first clinical trial in history. Lin chose 12 sailors with scurvy symptoms of similar severity and divided them into pairs, so six pairs. Each pair received a different diet. A pair received cider, another pair elixir of vitriol, two more seawater. <laughs> there was plenty on that in, in, at the sea. Uh, and then a paste of garlic, mustard seed, horseradish, balsam of Peru, and gum mith which is, I don't know what's that, uh, vinegar and citrus fruits, which were two oranges and one lemon per day. The first controlled clinical trial was born there. In six days, the sailors who enjoyed the citrus fruits were cured. And in 1748, Lind ended his period as a naval surgeon and returning to Edinburgh. Five years, years later, he published his treatise on scurvy which included a review of over 50 books on the treatment of SCARBY and included also his experiment.
0: Wow. So clearly it looks like he didn't do power calculations and things. (laughs) No, not at all. You must be be thinking, I wish I was a researcher back in those days Mm. than now, (laughs) Enrique. So easy to do things and uh, very interesting. I guess there's so many more discoveries to make at that time. Enrique, when I was uh, was training with uh, Bjorn Rambakan in Leeds, and he Mm. always... Came up with these amazing stories pretty much on a daily basis, and it was a, it was amazing to do lists with him. Um, and I remember we always using this anecdote about a story of stocks. I think it's in post World War Germany and and birth rate amongst humans. I uh, always used to tell this story to sort of uh, to mm-hmm. highlight difference between association and causality. Uh, and I, I think that probably the story goes that the there was an association between the number of stock breeding pairs and human birth rate. And that led on to people imagining various stories and anecdotes and things. Uh, And I always found this interesting. And uh, I was going through some of your blogs, and I came across a very interesting blog on reverse causality. Uh, This is something that really fascinates me. And is so common in so many published literatures, uh, published studies. Many of us, I guess, most of the times, just have time to just read the abstracts. And I really, uh, you as a researcher may go in depth, but uh, me as a clinician probably do not have time to read things in depth and uh, critically look at them and and this is not always teased out in papers i think but uh, usually mentioned in the discussion section somewhere in the corner and never read about this can you tell us a little bit more about this interesting uh,
1: fact and if there's any stories associated with this I've been fighting against reverse causation for one decade, I think. Oh, <laughs> Look, <laughs> yeah. one of the most powerful arguments in the 1990s that led to the recommendation of aggressive fluid resuscitation in acute pancreatitis was the relationship between hemoconcentration and pancreatic necrosis. There were several studies that described those patients with pancreatic necrosis had a higher hematocrit than those with mild pancreatitis without necrosis. This led to the idea that together with some animal studies on acute pancreatitis, this led to the idea that elevated hematocrit increases blood viscosity and the blood do not flow properly through the microcirculation of the inflamed pancreas, favoring local thrombosis and ischemia that would cause the necrosis in other words a causal relationship was attributed a high hematocrit leads to increased viscosity and this is associated to pancreatic necrosis so you have to give a lot a lot a lot of fluids to patients with acute pancreatitis to avoid the development of necrosis so i started studying the relationship between fluids administered into patients with acute pancreatitis the severity of pancreatitis and hematocrit And in 2014, we described that severe pancreatitis has significant fluid sequestration. We realized that we were looking at reverse cause causation bias, when what you think it is the cause is actually the consequence. The is elevated in necrotizing pancreatitis because inflammation causes blood, causes plasma from blood vessels to leak into the interstitial space. So hemoconcentration is a consequence of severity of what we call capillary leak syndrome, that is an increase in the permeability of the small vessels that makes the plasma to go to the interstitial space because of inflammation, and that leads to hemoconcentration.
0: Right. Wow. It goes to say that it's so important to recognize this, you know, Yeah. Things, you know, you could cause so harm. And it's almost like we uh, in the medical community should be so careful about taking things lightly, and everything needs to be really well uh, looked at before I guess we propagate or spread the knowledge and science. So, Constance, it's such an important topic, Enrique, uh, how could our listeners recognize this when they read papers? Because it's just, you just now demonstrated it's such an important thing, completely changes the course of our knowledge from what we thought in the past to what we are thinking now. Uh, I mean, in terms of reverse causality. Uh, and recently, there's a huge explosion in the publications and not all the papers are extensively peer reviewed and looked Uh, at this in in, in that kind of lens and as it is such an important topic how can is there any way to recognize this Uh, they can give us some ideas and clues
1: well in it can be very very difficult in order to determine this it is necessary to consider when reading a paper whether the study provides sufficient evidence of a causal relationship or only describes an association which may be due not only to reverse causation bias, but eh, also to other biases.
0: Right, okay. Because sometimes the headings or the title can be very misleading. You know, Instead yes. of saying association, they just make it more dramatic, and uh, that is what is more misleading, I think. And, the, and certainly the non-medical field, the papers or the media pick up on just the title, and, and go on about a lot of things. Anyway, what is interesting um, is that the more I think about it, the more I look at papers with this lens of reverse causality, I feel I see it in so many published evidence. How can we reduce, what are the, some of the ways to reduce this risk of
1: bias? You know, I see articles every day, as you said, uh, where they may be a calculation causation bias. For example the relationship between malnutrition and mortality, specifically in my case in pancreatic cancer. You know, people with severe illness about to die can't eat because they are dying. They are too sick. Their nutritional markers are deteriorating because they are dying. But it is tempting to think that they are dying because of malnutrition and that by giving them nutritional supplements, they will survive prospective studies especially randomized clinical trials, are useful for demonstrating causality since the temporal dimension is included. If the study is retrospective, you don't have this temporal insight, no? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if it is prospective and it is a randomized clinical trial, what happens before and what happens after is important. Otherwise, in more complex scenarios, I like to use the 10 Bradford-Hill causality criteria. For example, I applied them together with my very good friend, Gabriele Capurso, in a paper in Nature Reviews in Gastroenterology and Pathology in 2021, which we showed that it is not clear that COVID-19 is associated as a causality factor
0: Uh, as an
1: etiology with acute pancreatitis, a hypothesis that was very strong during the pandemic.
0: Wow. The discussion point is is so fascinating about this. Enrique, some stories in medical history are very surprising and um, uh, you would have never guessed that this was the case when you hear such stories. Mm. Uh, Is there anything interesting that you've come across that
1: surprised you the most? Well, uh, I... Like the, it surprises me the story of the French physiologist Claude Bernard. Uh, He discovered in the 19th century that pancreatic juice serves to digest food through a series of experiments conducted on dogs. And his wife, Marie-Francois, whom he married in a marriage of convenience because she was wealthy and this allowed him to finance his experiments at first. But, you know, Mary was an animal rights activist and soon opposed her husband experiments later divorcing him. I found it interesting because there are debates that seem current, but have been discussed for over 100 years, my friend. Right. (laughs)
0: Wow. Anything that happened recently in the modern world uh, will be a, a curious or an interesting fact that is worth for our Listen to draw, Enrique. Um something recently.
1: Okay, there is a current topic that is the eruption of artificial intelligence in academic and research life, which can bring positive consequences indeed, such an advances in complex techniques, but also problems such as using it to perform intellectual tasks that we will later pretend to have done ourselves, like writing scientific articles without effort, <laughs> meta-analysis without effort, I don't know to ask for grants without effort and without declaring that it has been done with artificial intelligence, because you can say so. That's okay. You have yeah. you you can say that you have used a tool, but otherwise if you are supposed to have done some work that you didn't, I don't feel this is good. Yeah. In my newsletter I wrote a story on this subject. We are living a period of change and I don't know where are we going right now in in human history, because you know the machines have helped us to do many many tasks since we were in the prehistory, but now they're thinking, uh, and this is for me it's it's not good. I don't know, my friend.
0: I remember I was in Dublin the last two three days, and uh, Helmut Messerman, the ESG president, did his initial talk on a chat GPT, and he he put it on the big screen in the opening ceremony. It was interesting how good the uh, the chat GPT wrote the welcome welcome speech actually.: <laughs> So Enrique, before we wind up, do you have any final comments?
1: Once again, I would like to congratulate the OEG for this initiative to create this podcast and you for your job. Thank you. OEG is a very active society, very dynamic, and is really helping its members to develop. So to be part of this podcast has been very important for me. Thank you very much, Pradeep.
0: Thank you so much for your valuable time. I, d- I do hope that we will, will come with some interesting topics and things for our listeners in the future. Thank you.
1: Thank you.